I'm a laid back person in general. I mean, you, you've met me off stage and stuff. I mean, yeah, it's, I'm pretty. You know, You're chill. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you are a functioning alcoholic, but you are chill. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Mark. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Uh, welcome to uh, episode two of. I think whatever we are calling this podcast, Ricky, I know last week we discussed it. Uh, we've not actually got a title yet. I'm still going on Captain My Captain uh, because I still want to be the inspirational, uh, basically an inspirational comedy part in your life. Are you still happy with that? <laughs> yeah, I'm still happy with that. Oh, no, you hesitated. You, hesi- <laughs> you hesitated. You hesitated then. Uh, well, that's because you've been describing yourself to like, Robin Williams for the last couple of episodes and stuff like that. Big shoes to fill, but still, I see you like that. That is uh, comedically not a patch on him. I'm just going for the inspirational thing. Fine. Do you know what? I'm going to keep referring to myself as Michelle Pfeiffer then. That's quite simply. You probably have more in common with her, I guess. I wonder if actually, if we called the podcast the Michelle Pfeiffer podcast. We'd get a lot more views. Yeah, we might get people sneaking into it because it's called... And then they'll go, hold on a second, that fat white man from Bristol thinks that he's Michelle Pfeiffer. But then we'll understand that it's all about, uh, you know... um, I can't even remember the name of the film. But anyway, I'm Michelle... (laughs) But today, I'm Michelle Pfeiffer. I Actually, do you know what I quite like? So there's a film called Mr. Holland's Opus, which is another one of those inspirational films. Uh, Mr. Olver's Opus. Mr. Olver's Ricky. No, that sounds weird. Mr. Olver's Ricky. It sounds like I'm pimping you out. Yeah, yeah, you pretty much are. I don't know. I don't want to pimp you out, Ricky. I don't want to. You're a good looking. <laughs> you're a good looking boy, but I don't think I'd earn that much money from you. So yeah, um, my prices are higher than you think. <laughs> but anyway, whatever we are calling this, um, how are you? So the last time we spoke, we were chatting to. Robin Morgan, the great Robin Morgan. And at the end of that conversation, after we spoke about all the stuff, he was like, come and do one of my Zoom gigs. And you've not done many Zoom gigs. And then you went and did it. How how was it? How was the gig? It was a lot of fun, actually. It was actually like really fun. It was so weird, like getting used to it. Because even Zoom in general is this awkward thing where you're trying not to speak over everyone else but like in the one that i did like a couple days ago it was like more of a new material night thing where people were just saying stuff like seeing if it stuck and there was like i what i didn't realize is that some people just would not switch on their cameras so there was just like two or three people with their cameras on and it was like i was having a conversation with them engaging all my material off of them and there was this like poor couple who just decided to watch a Zoom gig. And I was just trying to take all my material and see their reactions. And I would gauge whether or not it worked or not off of them. And yeah, like I think it's a good idea. It actually does work quite well. And I can see it sticking around, but like it doesn't replace live comedy. Definitely not. I think the front row things on Zoom gigs now. So, you know, you have, I don't know. 50 people, 100 people. I did one last night, actually. I did a Zoom gig for Mm. uh, the University of the West of England uh, in Bristol. And there were, at maximum, I think, so they'd sold about 1,000 tickets. And I think the maximum, they had about 800 on at one point. Like, it properly kicked off at one point. Um, But the front row was only four people. (laughs) There were only four. 
there were only four Zooms um, because all the other people were a bit nervous about joining in, a bit felt a bit weird about it. And we had Rosie Jones, we had Joel Domit, we had Abby Clark. So it was a really good bill. But for most of it, you just had these four cameras and there was like two people on their own. One guy was in Vietnam. One guy <laughs> was watching us. It was a UWE student who was at home in Ho Chi Minh City. And he was like three o'clock in the morning. He was watching this uh, this Zoom comedy gig and he was just on his own. Then there was a couple, a married couple. And then there were four girls in a student flat. But although it's weird, it does help, doesn't it? Because it's just, it's, you're still able to talk to people, right? Yeah. You're still able to look them in the eye and just have a conversation. Yeah, like out of interest, like with your, when you did it, what, because you're like, um, you kind of, you talk to the audience quite a bit, like when you're doing your like, comparing and stuff like that. So like, how did you get around that? Did you just do material or did you still talk to that front row? Uh, what were you thinking there? So I've done uh, I've done a few virtual gigs for Zoom, but I've also done um, virtual TV warm up where um, I'm in a TV studio and I've even done it in a hotel where I'm in I'm in the place and then I've got all of these people and sometimes I can hear them. But a lot of the time I did the warm up for the voice on ITV virtual audience and I couldn't hear the audience. Um, I've done it for, uh, and so my technique with that, I think there are two techniques for Zoom gigs. My technique isn't necessarily the right one, but it definitely works for me, which is I just go absolutely massive and talk fast and talk really loud. So, <laughs> like, my technique is if there's not a gap, then they don't realise there should be a gap where a joke should go. So I just keep going. So nothing nothing ever starts and finishes. It just... So are you all ready? We're going to start in a minute. Are you OK? Are you over there? You're in Ho Chi Minh City. What time is it there? Are you all right? You know, and I'm, I'm like... I feel like an auctioneer, like... Or uh, someone doing like a, like a farm animal cattle market sort of thing, <laughs> you know, and I just kind of go... Because I sort of think that the way I am that my job as a compare, my job as an MC, my job as a warm-up is to get the energy up. Mm. So it's not necessarily about listen to my jokes. Yeah. It's more like, come on, everyone. <laughs> um, whereas other people, uh, and Rosie Jones was on last night and she did it so beautifully. She sits in front of her camera and sort of just really casually tells these stories and does sort of, I think maybe, do you find, I don't know what you did last week. Do, do you find anecdotes work worked better than jokey jokes? Or do you find jokey jokes work better than anecdotes? What do you... Uh... I would definitely say anecdotes work better. Because it's like, because it's, it's essentially, it's taking out all the, the whatever, however much of this there was anyway, Hollywood magic from the stand-up. Because you're... <laughs> <laughs> You're literally, you can see, I mean, you can see my bedroom, my posters of like, it's hard for me to be like, act like 
give you the allure of professionalism. So it's almost better if I just tell stories and tell you about myself and make that funny instead of trying to think, okay, joke, 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 here we go, because it feels a bit more artificial. Like, not that you can't make that work, it's just you have to kind of get over that barrier of you're looking at my bedroom, but I'm still going to treat this like a massive gig. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the the great Scottish comedian Phil Kay, uh told me years ago that he just stand up is just talking to people you know stand up is just mm-hmm. uh one person talking to another person there just happened to be lots of them there um and so if you can communicate and you can communicate on stage you should be able to communicate uh on zoom but you do need to be able to have a bit of a feedback loop from the audience you do need to be able to kind of to see something from them right um and so you said you did new material pretty much yeah pretty much and so tell me uh tell me about this uh tell me about this new material tell me tell me what you did because is this stuff that i won't have heard already so for people who are catching up we should always say this so you've done like 22 gigs uh i've seen you turn over your material already in those 22 gigs which is absolutely brilliant uh but you came up with some new ideas new things that you wanted to talk about last week yeah yeah because um i've been trying to do as much writing as possible in lockdown like stand-up stuff because like um i've started a TikTok, which is essentially based around my stand-up so that's an excuse for me to write stand-up material but the hardest thing. So when so when Robin asked me to do the gig, I was kind of ready with stuff that I wanted to try out. It's like the weirdest thing about lockdown and stuff with writing comedy is that there's nothing around you to actually inspire material. So you're just kind of going off whatever's going around around you. You know, you're right. A lot of comics are going to end up with a lot of jokes about wanking. <laughs> it's of- so true. It's so true. There's going to be a lot of wanky jokes, a lot of jokes about uh, your Amazon delivery driver, a lot of jokes about, uh, oh, God, what else is I mean, that's it. Yeah. Like, walks. I mean, that's <laughs> walks. about it, right? Just having a walk. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're like a political comedian you've got a lot of stuff to talk about because that never goes away uh, if you talk about stuff that ha- that's happening in the news or whatever like observational stuff you're doing that from your your bedroom looking at bbc news or whatever but it's like with what i did at the zoom gig es- essentially all of it was just m- stuff that's happened to me over lockdown and i guess it's quite useful because i work i work in a hospital so i did some material about like about that so i do actually get to go outside first of all so i get to see people interacting so i spoke a bit about that and then i spoke a bit about uh because i'm i'm in a relationship and a lot of my housemates are single so essentially like you said there was a lot of wanking jokes about how their lives are a lot worse than me with a year of essentially forced celibacy oh yeah i don't even i don't even are you do you live with boys as well yeah yeah seven oh god i don't want to think about that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I imagine, imagine. I imagine the laundry baskets. Absolutely. <laughs> a lot of crispy things. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine you just walk past it and you could just hear, hear the noise of the sperm going, oh, I'm lost. Who are you? The lost potential. Oh, what a horrible, horrible image. So we're going to talk today uh, to the brilliant Nathan Caton. Uh, who is an amazing comic and, and quite nicely, actually, 
connected to you. I first met Nathan when he was a student. Oh. Uh, I compared the Chortle Student Comedy Award. Uh, Nathan will be able to tell you what year it was. Um, and he won. So he oh, won man. that year. God, it could be. I'm, I'm going to get I'm going to guess 2007, but I yeah. might be wrong. Um, and uh, and so I met Nathan then when he was a student and he's gone on to have a great career. Radio 4 uh, stuff, Mot the Week stuff. And he's a brilliant, brilliant writer. It'll be a really good opportunity to talk to someone who um, started stand up as a student mm. and knows knows how to write jokes. And that's yeah. so is that the sort of stuff you want to talk to Nathan about a bit today? Is it about joke writing stuff? Yeah, joke writing. Yeah, I think that would be a good thing to focus on. Joke writing and style. I really like his style. Like, it's very, like, chill. Like, I feel like, oh, yeah, this is a guy that I could, you know, I mean, I was about to say this is a guy I could have a conversation with, but that's literally about to fucking happen. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's hope, for the sake of this podcast, let's hope that you can have a conversation with him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is going to be a really, really difficult that's hour. Like, just... like you, Dave. Weird. I don't like talking to you. <laughs> Your style lied to me, Nathan. It lied to me. But yeah, like just the joke joke writing would be interesting. And also like um is a similar similar like student comedy background to me. And it'd be interesting to hear how he started and if he always knew at uni that he wanted to be a comedian or if um and how he felt about being a student comedian. Like, did he go to student comedy nights? Did he feel like that was something that hindered him? Because like I think sometimes when people find out my my age and my inexperience like people think like oh what, what does he know about comedy this little youngster is gonna make me laugh or whatever so it'd be interesting to hear what what he did when he was at my stage yeah do you know what there's two things there number one is when i first started doing jonglers gigs and there aren't really any anymore but they're they're your big friday saturday night party gigs adults mm. going out stag and hen parties and i started doing those when i was probably about 26 or 27 and if i'm i felt too young like i wasn't mm. too young i felt too young because I, I would go out and i would look at all these adults and i would mm. and they would felt like grown-ups to me with grown-up lives and grown-up <laughs> jobs and i was just this little boy wandering around and mucking about on stage. And I just thought to myself, oh God, I don't feel like, like what, why would you listen to me? Why <laughs> would you pay any attention to me? You're paying good money. But then I realized that actually, and this is the great thing about stand up, everything that's a bit of a negative, you can turn into a positive. So mm. everything that is a bit of a negative thing, uh, in that moment, in that life, in that uh, situation, if it feels like it's negative, write a joke about it. So mm. if you feel that you are too young for that audience that you're talking to, then write a joke about it. You know, if you mm. feel that you are too black for a white audience write a joke about it if you are if you're a woman and you're going to a gig where it's all really blokey hmm. if you've got a joke about it not only are you addressing that situation but you're addressing that situation in a funny way that that, hmm. that it, and there's a lot of comedy that comes out of those slightly tricksy situations does that make sense no definitely definitely and it's like i think I think I've heard you say that before. And it's like, 
that I've definitely used that when it comes to uh, being the blackest person in a white room. If there's a scale of being black, <laughs> <laughs> like, um, like, I, are you the blackest person in your student house? I am by far the blackest person. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, saying that there's the second blackest person is Chinese. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's the scale. But it's like, um, like, because I realized when um, I, for some people and some audiences when i tell jokes about being black or jokes about race or whatever that work in some rooms and i've and i've trialed them out i've worked them out and i've made them like as best as they can be or whatever like i find that some audiences just like clinch at the idea of talking about race and i think the place that i noticed it the most was when i did a gig in brighton and in brighton like classic liberal open-minded city like it's just when i but when i said the word black i literally saw the front row just like clinch in like awkwardness <laughs> and it's like the and when i when, when when I ask, said, did you follow uh did you follow it with power <coughs> and were you doing a uh, were you doing a black power fist at the time is that well, why they clinched well i'm always doing a black power fist first, <laughs> first of all that's why they clinched yeah but um it was it was like um their reaction was so strange because it was like what i was saying wasn't offensive or anything but i used that awkwardness and turned it into a joke because because i was worried about that would be a thing like kind of in the back of my mind and when on my walk to the gig i walked past a fake tan shop and then i just laughed in my head because i thought like a fake tan shop in brighton what would happen if i walked in there like would they just die of awkwardness <laughs> so then when i went on stage i then spoke about how gosh you guys are more uncomfortable than that fake tan shop i went into on my way here like brighton's just that classic kind of city and it's like you can really just turn that uncomfortable feeling into humor by just talking about the uncomfortable feeling absolutely and that's the same thing about being a younger comic or it's the same thing about and, and my favorite comics i think sort of the best comics always come from we'll, we'll get into this one day we'll get into this in an episode because it's a really boring long academic <laughs> conversation um but there's a thing called uh the liminal space and the liminal space um it's a cultural theory about basically being on the periphery so not being mm too far away from some balls and not being right in the center um yeah and it's it's liminality is all about kind of being able to talk about mm. stuff and being able to to observe stuff and when you're on the periphery it really helps you and i think so many comedians i know are for some reason on the periphery whether it's because mm. they are a woman in a man's world or uh, a person of color in this white world or whether you're um, uh, like a lot of the comedians that we know, just uh, a bit odd. Yeah. <laughs> like, a bit, like they have a, a different mindset, a different worldview. Mm. Um, and, and when you have that, it, you can, you can see it clearly. You can see the world around you quite clearly and then you can make jokes about it. And it's really good to make jokes as an outsider. Mm. You know, I think, uh, and I think that's quite interesting. Um, we'll talk about that at length on another episode with someone who knows more than I do about cultural theories. Um, but uh, 
and also, you know, we, we might discover by that episode that we might get text messages from people saying, please, can you not do anything about cultural theory? And then I'll go, <laughs> you know what? Maybe we should. I'm backing away from the cultural theory stuff. I'm backing away from it. We want knob jokes and wanking jokes about Ricky's house. <laughs> <laughs> so we are going to talk uh, to Nathan Caton. Uh, Nathan is our guest today. He's absolutely brilliant. You'll hear that chat uh, in a minute. Um and uh, we 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 pretty much sorted what we want to talk to him about, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. The joke writing, his style, all the good stuff. Perfect. So have a uh, have a listen to this. Uh, and this is uh, uh, myself and Ricky chatting to the amazing uh, Nathan Kitty. So, uh, Ricky, we are joined uh, for this episode by the amazing uh, Nathan Cato. And I don't think you two have met. Hi, Nath. How are you? I'm cool, mate. How are you? Do you know what? I'm all right. So this is uh, this is uh, young Ricky Masindo. And I will say that because uh, he's a baby. He's a child, Nathan. <laughs> a bubba. Oh, I, remember, I remember those days. Um, how old are you, Ricky? I am 22. and oh, loving it. Oh, mate. Living the high life. I remember when I was 22 doing stand-up. Now, do you know what? I was talking to Ricky about this. So I think I met you uh, for the first time. I compared your Chortle student comedy final. Oh, snap. On the boat. On the boat. On the boat. That you, that you, and you won, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was ages ago now. Well, uh, so, I was, so my guess uh, in the preamble for this, my guess was 2007. Am I wrong? Hmm. Was it earlier? Yeah, it was earlier. No, go on. 2005. Oh. Yeah. I know. Bloody hell. 16 years ago. Shit. Yeah. Ricky, how old were you in 2005? Christ. I was turning seven. Just about. Oh! oh. I was six for most of 2005. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nathan, it's a, it's a real shame that this is a podcast and not video because the look on Nathan Caton's face then, absolutely. Right. Because, Nath, I still see you as like one of the the young guys in comedy. I know. <laughs> because, uh, because I compared your uh, your children, <laughs> and I'm always like, oh, little Nathan Caton. But uh, but yeah, you're an old man now, bud. I want to log off. So. <laughs> <laughs> 2005. Wow. What was it, uh, Nate? What was it like being a being a student doing stand up? Like, did you? So Ricky is a medical student. Okay. Hello. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Oh, he's he's a clever boy. Yeah, I know. And you're doing comedy, right? Yeah, it's because it's so much fun. Um, yeah, ask him what his parents think of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they don't know. To be fair, my mum, I've told her, she's seen some of my stand-up, and her reaction has always kind of been like, oh, okay, as long as you're having fun. <laughs> Which is code for don't mess up the medicine. <laughs> yeah, but what she doesn't know won't hurt her. We'll see how that works out. <laughs> <laughs> what, were, uh, what was your family situation, though, when you... Because did you study... Was it architecture you did at university? Yeah, yeah. Was there a moment where you had to decide architecture or stand-up? Um, it was when I graduated, really. Uh, that's when I was like, I'm just going to do stand-up. Because by the time I... Because I started uh, after my first year of studying at uni. By the time I graduated, I was... So I'd done chore tour, done the student final. Um, I'd done, like, 
the new act competition, like Amuse Moose and like Laughing Horse and stuff. And I got to the finals and stuff like that. So I, I was get, starting to get a little bit of money. Not like I wasn't making it rains, but I was, the ball was starting to roll. So when I graduated, I was like, okay, well, I've come this far. Let me just see how far I can go. Uh, and hey, here I am, still blagging it all those years later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but my, my family, they didn't, they knew I was doing comedy, but for them, it was a hobby. They didn't think I was pursuing it like as a job. He's like, oh, yeah, it's a little thing he does. Yeah, it's like, you know, he's, he's going to be an architect. That's just something he does in his spare time. <laughs> Not realising that I had, like, uh, dreams of, like, trying to pursue this. So then when I told them, they were like, uh, but what about architecture? Like, like, I, I remember when I, when I first told my mum, she was like, well, how are you going to pay your share of the rent? Which I think... Was, that was like my mum's way of saying you're not funny enough for people to give you money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but then like my aunts, uh, my aunts were cool because they were like, they were like, he's young. He's still, he's got his architecture degree to fall back on if need be. Let him do what he wants for now and see what happens. And then here I am now. Do you ever wish that you were still an architect? Um, it depends. If you ask me like after like doing, I don't know, the store, oh, yeah, like, Lovely Apollo, no, I don't have any regrets. But yeah, if I'm doing like, yeah, like a port of Jonglers, you know, or like the uh, Jonglers Covent Garden or any of those shitty gigs, then I... Sway. Yes, yeah, Sway. Oh my gosh. When I do Sway Bar, I always think I, I should have just like, I should be designing buildings. I don't <laughs> Entertaining these bellends who don't want to laugh. <laughs> and what was it like? So Ricky has done about 20 gigs now, real life gigs around Bristol. Mm. And so Ricky, you've done sort of a mixture of like grown-up gigs, haven't you? And also student gigs. I've done, yeah, I've done like pretty much half and half. So somewhere it's like, ah, oh, yeah, uh, this guy's one of us, he's our age. And somewhere it's like, <laughs> who's that kid on stage? <laughs> it's like, it's pretty much just whatever I got. Like that was essentially my unique selling point that I'm young. And it's like <laughs> when someone is trying to book gigs, is trying to find someone who's down with the kids, they're like, ah, oh, Ricky. He was born in the late 90s. <laughs> yeah, all right, don't rub it in. <laughs> late 90s. Was that the same for you, Nathan? Yeah, yeah. Um, especially after doing the uh, the Chorlton student competition, um, I got a, a lot of uni work because uh, I was I was seen as, you know, I'm of that age, you know, these, these are your people, go talk to them. And, um, and yeah, it was weird because I, I would do the uni gigs, do really well, um, smash them and be like, oh man, I'm, I'm the greatest comedian ever. And then go and do the grown up gigs and uh, I'll do all right, you know, and some I would, I would struggle and die. And it was, it was like talking two different languages, you know, because uh, like, you, can, you can relate to, especially the stuff I was doing at the time, it, it was relatable for students. And then I go to like, the grown up gigs and it wouldn't translate as well. Or I'd have to change jokes and the certain jokes I wouldn't be able to do that I could do at uni gigs and vice versa. So it was, it was like, yeah, two different worlds, man. How did you um, get around that? Like, how did you change your jokes? Was there a way that you changed it for the audience or did you make fun of yourself for being young or what? Um, hmm, I guess a combination of things, really. I mean, one was like just getting more material and, you know, becoming more, more worldly so that it's not the student life, it's just the young man in the world life so that I, so that I could like, I developed material that was suitable for both audiences um and then just tweaking little things i guess at, at a student gig if you just take the mix out of someone you know you can be a bit more brash and they're students so <laughs> they'll go with it whereas in a grown-up yeah. 
at growing up at a public gig, you can't take the, well, you can take them in, but at the same time, they're looking at you thinking, who's this kid? Who's this, who does he think he's talking to like that? So you just got to adapt the way you approach it. But there's also the thing that when you start doing well at certain gigs, you have a little bit more of a swagger about you. So when you go into these uh, sort of adult gigs, grown-up gigs, weekend gigs, where they're eating, you know, chicken and chips in a basket, and the first time you go into those, you're like, oh, God, I've never done this before. So you can feel a little bit inhibited. But when you have done well, you're like, oh, yeah, I've got this. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So I suppose it's about what you're most comfortable with or what you're most, I suppose sort of familiar with really and then gradually you start realizing that you can talk to every and any audience i suppose yeah, yeah. Co co confidence plays a massive part in, in stand-up in general isn't it? i mean it's probably confidence is probably more important than natural material <laughs> <laughs> no so like if you've got, you got confidence man you can like if you've got the confidence to pull off material or the audience nine times out of ten they'll go with you because they'll be like okay he's got the confidence and they'll, they'll you can sell it to them um but yeah, Mark, what you're saying about like um, performing to like grown up proper gigs. I remember, um, oh, what was it? I think it was a laughing horse competition, New York competition. I did semi final, right? At the time, I would have been, I was what, 19, 20 at the eldest. Uh, and I remember before I went on, I remember thinking, there's no way I'm going to get through this final. I'm, I got through the heat. I'm in the semi final now. This is as far as it goes because I'm too young. But like, wh what I'm going to say, it's not going to work. No, I'm, I'm I'm a little kid. They're not going to care about what I've got to say. And I was so, I was almost defeated before I went on stage. So I went on stage, had nothing to lose, just took it as a free hit, did my thing. The audience laughed and they voted me through to the finals. And that's that's when I was like, oh, I am good enough to perform at like a proper gig. I, like it does work. It does it does translate. I'm not just like a student gig guy. I'm a I'm a comedian. But the thing about you, because Ricky, Nate's totally right, it is confidence. Like, stand-up is a confidence trick, really. That If you convince the audience that you're enjoying it, they will enjoy it. And so you either enjoy it or try and convince yourself you enjoy it and you go big and all that. But Nate, I always think what's really interesting with you is that although you're a confident person, you're quite laid back. Like, you're not... Mm. so. I was talking to Ricky in the preamble about my technique of doing Zoom gigs. And my technique mm. of doing Zoom gigs is to just not stop and just <laughs> rah, 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 and don't have any gap. <laughs> and so no one knows what a joke is meant to be because I just never leave a breath. And I'm like, bah, bah, bah. <laughs> and I'm a bit like that on stage. Like when I'm comparing, if I want the energy, I can kind of pump up to it. But Nath, you've always been quite, laid back and I'm, I'm you've not seen ricky gig but ricky is the same kind of just quite chilled like mm. when people are chill is that confidence that like do you do you make yourself seem chilled on stage or are you actually just chilled uh it's, it's both i mean i'm 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 a laid back person in general i mean you, you've met me on stage and stuff i mean yes yeah, I'm, I'm pretty you know yeah but chilled um but honestly yeah. I mean, you are a functioning alcoholic, but you are. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Mark. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, but on stage, I'm my brain's more on it, like. But obviously, I just don't show it to the audience, so they don't know. On on the outside, I, I'll, I'll be like, "Yeah, okay, everything's everything's in control. Like, I know I've got this." 
on the inside, though, I'm like, okay, what's, what's this? I'm working, I'm scanning the room, I'm thinking of the next joke or what jokes I can chuck in somewhere. Um, but on the outside, it's, it's again, it's a confidence thing. It's portraying that I'm in control. It's like if you're on a plane, for example, right, and uh, and the pilot comes across as cool, you're going to be cool in it. But if he's like, um, guys, it's a bit bumpy here, you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of how it is for me. Doing a gig. It's that thing. I think all comedians will have said this to someone at some point or another. It's that thing about a duck in it. On the surface, the duck is just swimming along quite nicely, chilling out. But yeah. underneath, his legs are going two to the dozen. Yeah. And that's what being a stand up is like, I think. On the surface, mm. you have to try and present this. I'm enjoying this and it's going all right. But underneath you're going, oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're going, okay, where's this gig? Okay, what's the next joke? What's the next joke? Who's laughing? Who's laughing? Who's not laughing? Who's not laughing? Who's talking? Blah, 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 blah. And you're, you're probably going for it. But on the outside, like, yeah, it's cool, man. Yeah, I've got this, man. Next show's coming and chill. Wait, let's wait for it. Uh, one, of the things, uh, one of the things that Ricky mentioned earlier was that, so he is a fan of yours. Oh, yeah, cool. From you. Mock the Week. So, so, uh, and and Ricky, you said that there is there's like a joke that Nathan did on Mock the Week that Nathan might have been or because this is what happens with comics. Yeah, we right. forget our own stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but there's but there's a joke that Nathan did on Mock the Week that you is that right, Ricky? That you still remember? Yeah, yeah. And I didn't even realize that I still remembered it until I uh, until we like um, planned this. And it's like it's something that I'm always laughing at because, like, when I. When I first came to the UK, there were certain things that I didn't know the name of, like specific things. And like, there was a joke on Mock the Week that you told where you were talking about people, I think, looting Tesco or something. Yeah. And they stole some basmati rice. Oh, yeah. And every time now I, I'm thinking of like looking at all the rices in an aisle, I'm like, what are the different types? Ah, basmati. <laughs> He <laughs> said, "It just stuck with me so much. You taught me the word basmati, and now that's just my go-to." Yeah. Disclaimer: Other rices are available. <laughs> yes, that's the only one for me. But yeah, if you ever want to be sponsored by like Uncle Ben's or something, that's definitely the shout. Well, I, I don't know how, how how far your podcast reaches out, but yo, give me a shout, man. I'm, I'm happy to take on some rice. Sell some rice. Right. How old were you when you came to the UK, Ricky? I was eight. Oh, wow. I was eight, and I had a very African accent. Did you speak English, really? Yeah, yeah, I spoke, I spoke English. So I was, I'm from Zimbabwe. Okay. I lived there until I was, like, eight years old. So I, I pretty much had, like, an African-American accent because most people don't realize, but outside of the UK, everyone else who speaks English speaks American English. Okay. Much. Yeah, so there's still certain things that I, like, I say, and everyone always corrects me, like, no, it's not, it's not the sidewalk, you uncultured <laughs> swine. It's a pavement. <laughs> it's like, oh, God, I'm in the wrong place in the world. It's a lift. And where did you move to? Where did the family go? In, uh, in Bedford. It's in Bedfordshire. So they went to nowhere, essentially, in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> like... That must have been a culture shock in Harvard, is Zimbabwe to Bedford. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Like, instead of, like, instead of famine, there's just obesity. That's really the big... <laughs> That's the biggest culture shock. The biggest culture shock. A lot of, a lot of diabetes around in, in Bedford. But it's, it's still a nice place. It's still a nice place. Yeah, I think it's like... That's funny, that's funny. It's the place, it's the place, I think, with... Because of Luton, Bedfordshire had the highest increase in crime in 2019. So that's our literal only claim to fame. 
<laughs> I mean, it's a good one. It's a good claim to fame. It is. No one can beat it. It's got an image of you like arriving in bed for the first time going, well, no wonder everyone back home is hungry. You guys all got all the fucking food. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I also like the fact that you give an eight-year-old Ricky from Zimbabwe a slight cockney accent there as well, no problem. Give me all the fucking food. <laughs> what the fuck is it? <laughs> Fucking hell, mate! You greedy fuckers! <laughs> God, that's amazing. So you were, so you were eight. So that was uh, someone do the maths for me. Like sixteen years ago. I am not. No. Yeah, well, fourteen years ago. Fourteen. Fourteen. Fourteen, yeah. fourteen years ago. I should know that number. Yeah. Fourteen. <laughs> so yeah. you were still Nathan. Years. Ricky was still in Zimbabwe when you won the total student final in two thousand and five. Yeah. <laughs> All right, mate, you start before me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's start talking about dates. <laughs> Rick, when did you know, Ricky? When did you That's know that you wanted to be a stand-up, Ricky? So, okay, so this is such a, like, cliche thing. But the actually, no, not even the first job that I wanted to do. Technically, for some reason, the first job that I wanted to do was to be a cowboy, according to my mum. <laughs> and the second job... <laughs> <laughs> the second job was to be a stand-up comedian. But then but then she just thought it was a phase and I would never like talk about it again. But then over the last few years I've been like, huh, that childhood dream kind of never went away. So here we are. Nice. Is that the same for you, Nate, apart from the cowboy bit? Oh no, I want to be a cowboy. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> Only two black cowboys in the world. Um... <laughs> <laughs> we need them representation. <laughs> um did I mm... I always wanted to do something with performing arts, but because my family are like drilled like academics into me, it was like, okay, so I need something else. Which is when architecture came in, because I like maths and I like drawing. Uh, but even though I did architecture, like even even when I was doing it, I was like, I still want to, I still want to do something with like acting or comedy or something in some way. Uh, and then I, st- I was watching more and more comedy in my late teens, like, hmm, hmm. And then it was like, a, on, it was on, it's in the back burner. Who were you watching, Nathan? Who were you watching that you liked? Um, okay, so well, the first comedians probably would have been like Lenny Henry, because that's what my family watched, you know. Because he was, well, you see, he was. He probably still is the black guy for British mainstream comedy. Um, so my family watched him, because obviously they could relate to what he was talking about. So he was the first person I saw. that. Like, oh, he looks like we look, and he's been funny. Um, and then Eddie Murphy, but oh, old school, like, 80s delirious war Eddie Murphy yeah uh, and then uh, a lot of I watch a lot of American comedians as opposed to British comedians like I watch a lot of like deaf comedy jam you know the, the DVD box mm. sets <clears throat> I watch like all that stuff from Chris Tucker Martin Lawrence and Bernie Mac and those kind of guys um, that was a lot of what I was watching like early no late teens early 20s and I think it's the same for you isn't it Ricky because we talked about so because I, I my knowledge of comedy is like 1950s American comedy, 1960s British comedy, and then people I do mm. the circuit. My not as a comedian, someone who loves comedy, my knowledge, like I know Chappelle, uh, I know Chris Rock, I know Bill Burr, but apart from that, I know Seinfeld, apart from that, there's so many people, and like I'm meant to be, and I'm gonna keep saying it because it's gonna stick in. <laughs> I'm meant to be the international <laughs> teacher here. But, Ricky will then tell me these names of some of these comics that he that he listens to, and I'm like, I have no idea who that is. <laughs> but, yeah, it's true. 
it is true to be fair because it's just like I think um I think to be fair my list of people that I used that I used to watch were actually quite similar to you Nathan like essentially the the big black comics that yeah, sounded yeah. a lot better in my head but like yeah like Chris Rock Dave Chappelle like Chris Tucker like what was that Rush Hour like yeah. with with Jackie Chan mm -hmm. yeah that that those are the things that got me into like thinking like ah oh, being funny like that's the thing yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it yeah so same for me like watching those the, the black American comedians um because I, I, I guess it was just I don't know I guess that maybe I could just relate to it more I don't know what but that's what drew me into comedy there's many many of the, the black American comedians and did you start because so we don't have this in Bristol but I do know in London there are um, I never know what to call them, whether you call them the urban gigs or the black gigs, but there's like a black <laughs> yeah, circuit okay. in yeah, London. Yeah. Did you do the black circuit as well as the student circuit? Yeah, yeah. I probably did more uh, black circuit gigs than I did mainstream gigs when I first started, because I thought, I didn't think I'd be funny enough on the mainstream, because I thought they're not going to relate to me, they won't get it. Uh, little that I know. Years later, I'm on Radio Four going, "Hello, white people." Um, <laughs> <laughs> but when I first started, yeah, I was doing, I was doing a, yeah, doing a, mostly black circuit gigs. Have you? I've never done one. I'd love to do one because uh, the the things people tell friends tell me about them are amazing. I've never been to one. Ricky, have you been to any of the black circuit gigs? No, I actually haven't. But uh, I know a lot of my friends love them. Like uh, my girlfriend lives in Croydon, and she was saying that I should do this gig with uh, where they do like where it's like very black influence, like stand up. But it's also it's weird because. Now that I've come to uni, Christ, am I white? Like, <laughs> like, all, like all my influences. It's like I can't talk to I can't talk to these people about like Bristol and like drum and bass music. Like that's all that's everything that's around me pretty much at uni. But it's like I would need to go back to my ethnic roots. <laughs> <laughs> Although I suppose there's something quite funny. About, it's like um I met uh the guy who's doing going really viral at the moment, uh, Mua Chihuahua, yeah, the yeah, other yeah, week, yeah. yeah. And I met him, and so he's got that vibe as well, hasn't he? That because he does the sort of uh, posh rapper, yes, exactly. Um, and so I suppose that's quite fun. Well, tell me what a black gig's like, Nathan. What's the because obviously I've done lots of circuit gigs with you, lots of art mm. centers, and all that. What's the yeah, difference yeah. between what you call a mainstream gig and a black gig? Uh, well, uh, there's a lot more black people. <laughs> Start with the basics. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Just, just, just a few more. Um, and uh, and sometimes uh, black circuit gigs, it's not just comedy. There'll be comedians, but there might also be like a, a poet or musician mm -hmm. or something as well. Um, but in terms of the comedy, uh, it's. It's, there's a lot more energy. I mean, like when, when black people laugh, they mm. they laugh. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, I mean, you no, know, like they, they're clapping, they're slapping something, they're <laughs> yes. in their thighs. You know, yes. they, they're standing up. Oh, man. They're probably like going for it. But at the same time, like if if they don't laugh, oh, they don't. Laugh. <laughs> they, they, they will let you know. <laughs> they will just. just Look at you like you're an idiot, man. This is this when they turn to the side, it's folded arms. <laughs> That's the classic. That's yeah. the classic. Like, a, like, a, like an angry parent. Like, 
why are you wasting my time for boy? Go, get, get off stage. Come come off the stage, boy. Um, <laughs> but um, but it's just this this energy though. This energy and uh, you do the same material. Um, hmm. basically, have you got shitloads of plantain material that I've never seen you do? <laughs> plantain material. <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. Before we go on there, let me. Let me do you say plantain or plantain? Oh, I mean, are you asking? Sorry, can I just say before we before. Who are you asking? Are you asking the white guy or are you asking Ricky? <laughs> I'm asking both. Okay, both plantain. I'm going plantain. Okay, I say plantain, but I have changed to plantain. My man, Ricky. My man. My man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I want to say plantain because it sounds so nice. Sorry. 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 What What just happened here? Have I just realised that I've been being culturally insensitive by saying plantain? I mean, if you went to the West Indies and you said plantain, they'd be like, what? Uh, plant, <laughs> say plantain. Like, oh, now you now you say it properly. Okay, right. I've got it. I've got it. We were uh, we were talking about material earlier, and and this is one of the things that I think you're as you become a stand up, as you become more experienced. Like you were saying, having more material, all that sort of stuff. And you you will notice during this podcast, and this won't come across, but but Ricky always has a pen in his hand, and he's always writing notes and stuff like that. He's very he's very he's very diligent, nice young man. Um, Ricky, how do you how do you go about at the moment coming up with with your material, Ricky? Okay, so I even though I've done twenty two gigs, I have a method that has been refined over time, kind of. <laughs> Yeah, I know, Nate. How great is that? He's he's defined he's refined this method over his twenty-two gigs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, when I'm doing the massive arenas, I want to have a story to tell that I had a method from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's like essentially what I'll do is I I like like literally I'll just think of the punchline first, which is actually quite annoying because what I'm quite bad at doing is taking a premise and talking about it. But I'll think of something that I find funny and then build a premise in front of it to make the punchline happen, essentially. And uh, and it's like, it's it's got its benefits and its drawbacks, but like, I'll think of something that I find funny. And then from there, I'll take that joke and I'll put it on a piece of paper, like handwritten, and then I'll annotate it and say why it's funny. And then I'll put it on like Google Docs and then I'll write it. <laughs> then I'll, this is this is stage two of the process. Then I'll put it on Google Docs, write it out and then cut down the words as much as possible. Like get the economy of words, like make it as short as possible and then put in bold the part that I think will be funny. And then I'll see if when I say it to myself on a recording, if that part in bold is actually funny or not. And that's how I trial the joke before I take it to new material nights and then we go from there. Mate, that sounds like a job. <laughs> <laughs> I am so bored, Nathan. I am so bored. <laughs> that's what my life has become. Uh, Nathan, do you want to uh, share yours? And you could use the word Google Docs uh, if you want. No, there, there will be no Google Docs in this next <laughs> paragraph. Um, I mean, I, I, I used to be kind of oh, maybe not as in depth as you were Ricky. um when i first started i would i would find something uh, in the news or something that happened to me that i would talk about <clears throat> and i'll sit there like for the day or whatever writing out everything um and, and i end up like writing like a whole essay 
uh, and then I'll type it out word for word, but then I'll go on stage and I would never say it as I wrote it all out. Because when you're on stage, you're just, you're flowing mm. and it's come out so differently. So I changed it where I'll just, I'll just write bullet points instead mm. and then go on stage, uh, record myself, uh, and then however it came out, that's that's how it would be. And if it was funny, it was staying. If it went funny, it was out. And then I'll just keep on saying that bit of material until I got it down to a polished bit of material or polished line. Uh, now, um, I, I, I barely write down the whole thing. I'll make mental notes in my head or like I've got like a little a little notepad of like this bit on it and that one word or that line is a bit and I'll, I'll I in my head I know what I want to say I know where I want to get to I just have to do a gig and say it out loud and see how it comes out uh, I, don't, I, I won't write out the whole thing now because I know that mm. how I write how I write it won't be how I say it I'd rather just say it on stage see what happens and then write it. Do you think that you've gone to that point because of your experience or do you think this method is just inherently better? No, no, I don't think it's better. Each to their own. Everyone's got their own way. I think for me it is, yeah, just, it's yeah. just experience. I've, I've found a way that suits yeah. me and that I'm comfortable with. Uh, whereas when I first started, yeah. I wouldn't be brave enough to just write it down. No, like, no, I need to know everything that I'm saying. Yeah. Whereas I've got to the point where it's like, okay, I know how to do comedy. So I can write down just a bullet points or a, a top line, and then I can just go from there and you know, just not freestyle it, but kind of just, just see how it how it evolves organically. Nathan's totally right, Ricky. Every system, whatever works for you, is the right system. But what you'll start discovering is when you're doing gig after gig after gig, you might mm. then go, "Oh, I'm going to do." That joke, I'm going to do Ricky's. Rick, we were talking again in the preamble about this joke mm. Ricky's got about being in lockdown with his three housemates who are all single and just, you know, the amount of wanking that is going <laughs> on. At the Biceps of steel. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and it's just, and so thinking about writing that and what you'll discover is the perfect punchline for that material will turn up one day. And it might turn up mm. when you're sat at your desk. It might turn up on a drive to a gig. Um, so the, the annoying ones for me are when it turns up in a dream and you dream <laughs> and you're like, oh, no, I have to write it. But often it'll turn up on stage and it'll yeah. turn up when you're saying it and you go, holy shit, that is staying in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, those are the good ones. When, when you say something on stage and, and you get that, that big hit, that pop from the audience, you're like, oh, that was oh. good. That felt good. And yeah, yeah. And, and I don't record myself, so I'm always like, if that happens to me, I'm always like, come on, my comedian friends, tell me what I just did, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I can, so I can but remember it. Do you because... never record yourself, mate? No, no, I don't. No, you should, well, the amount of like tangents and stuff that you go on, you would think that you would record yourself. I know it'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Uh, no, I do you know what? I, I don't, I don't like listening to myself back. I don't, uh, mm. I don't know, I, I never. I never have. I don't do many sets, so I suppose for for comparing, it's kind of like well, whatever. I think if I was going to do the next time I decide to do Edinburgh, I'll probably record everything in the lead up to Edinburgh if I'm trying to, you know, work on an actual show. Mm. Um, at the moment, recording myself feels like it's all 
a little bit too serious for the nonsense that I do on stage. I want to. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to validate this bullshit by recording. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not validate this bullshit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, Ricky, was there anything else that you wanted to to ask Nathan? I know because there's all sorts of things that we were we were talking about earlier. Yeah, so it's like with um, like like with your your joke writing and stuff. Like when you were saying the the stuff about like. Uh, the black circuit versus the main circuit or whatever. Because mm. what we were talking about in the preamble kind of was about uh, how I've, how I have to kind of change some of my jokes when I'm in front of an audience of completely white people and telling start jokes about like black things or black jokes, not even necessarily talking about planting or whatever, but making yeah. a joke about race, like Black Lives Matter, whatever, like, and then like the audience visibly like, oh, like tenses up or whatever. Like, have you ever experienced that? And like, have you ever found a way that's good of dealing with that? So you can still talk about that stuff or do you change your material or anything? Uh, didn't, I don't think it changed my material. Um, if any, like, if it, I'll be honest, like, if I do a gig where like, I talk about race and like, it's a room for the white people and they get uncomfortable. It's kind of funny. You know <laughs> it is. I mean? it is. Thank <laughs> you. It's hilarious. But not in a bad way. I don't mean that. I'm trying to be racist, man, but it is kind of funny. It's like, guys, relax. It's okay. I said it. It's fine. Laugh. You know what I mean? You don't have to be offended on my behalf. It's yeah. cool, man. I'm just a comedian. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it, just, just laugh. <laughs> just enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> enjoy the, enjoy that. that uncomfortable feeling um it'll just acknowledge it you know make a joke out of it it's like okay guys relax it's okay it's fine um and then on, on black circuit uh but to be honest i haven't done a black circuit gig for a good one mm. so i'm not even sure about that that's 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 another weird thing that, that the black circuit i've kind of fallen into the mainstream and the black circuit has kind of just lost me interesting i mean i, I don't know why but they just they don't call me they don't call you they, they don't, they don't call me, but at the same time, I don't call them because I don't, like, I've got gigs on the mainstream, so it's like, I don't need to chase it. But then in a weird way, like, and I don't want to sound like I'm being a sellout or anything, but I kind of prefer the mainstream yeah. because in the mainstream, you can anyone can be on the mainstream. You get black people in the audience, white people, Asian, whoever. Mm. So I feel like the range is bigger, therefore I can talk about more things. Mm. On a black circuit where it's just, you know, you've got to stay down, a lot of the time, you're staying down at one lane. You can't really branch into others. Yeah. So I feel like on a mainstream, I feel like, okay, anything could happen. And I probably, I probably I enjoy that challenge more. Interesting. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Like, Because going to a Black Circuit gig, I guess, there's a topic to talk about to the night, yeah. I guess. it's a, I can see that being potentially kind of limiting. But that that's really interesting. As always, I'm taking notes, being the diligent comedy students oh, as I am. It's not all black gigs. No, it's not all black. Don't, don't boycott the black circuit because of me. <laughs> no, no, Nathan, Nathan, I've written it down now. That's in stone. <laughs> but that, but the thing is, I think what's really important is, is that I think every gig is important when you start. Yeah, I think, yeah. you know, black gigs, mainstream gigs, uh, new at night, someone wants you to do comedy at a birthday party or before some band. Like when you start, you do literally everything and anything mm -hmm. you can get your hands on. Yeah. You just kind of, it's just that stage time. You just keep, and actually that's one of the problems. There are some brilliant comics from the black circuit who have come onto the mainstream circuit. Um, 
Judy Love is a really good. He's probably the recent example. Mm-hmm. He was like a superstar on the on the black circuit, and then came into the mainstream circuit and TV stuff, sort of fully formed. I saw her in in definitely not a black gig because it was in Gravesend. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know that gig, Nate? The uh, the off the curb laughing the, gig in Gravesend. The Woodville. The Woodville. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. And uh, I'd heard loads about Judy, uh, and then I saw her then, and oh my god, she smashed it like I'd not seen anyone <laughs> smash it before. Mm. Like she's a brilliant comic, but although the black circuit, especially in London, is a really thriving circuit, there aren't shitloads of gigs all the time everywhere. Mm. So if you're only doing that circuit. Mm you're sort of limiting yourself to how many gigs you're doing. Whereas if you do the mainstream circuit and it's not lockdown, you might have to hunt for them, but holy shit, you can do as many gigs as you want a week and you can just keep going and going and yeah. going and going and going and going is the thing that makes you a better comic. And as you were saying about Nathan finding his voice, like I've seen Nathan since he was a student and the, the, the thing that's changed most about him is that his clothes have got better. It's <laughs> the same style. It's the same style clothes, but he just spends a bit more money on them now. Yeah, you, you know what, bro? Um, I saw a picture of uh, myself from, I think, 2006 or seven. I had on a... On, I was on stage. I had on a bandana around my head with a cap back to front. And I was like, what... Am I trying to be a comedian or like the next member of like G Unit, the rap group? Because <laughs> I just, I was like, bloody hell, I wore that shit on stage and I thought that was presentable. Yeah. And you know what? A lot of us were like, yeah, we should probably tell Nathan about the bandana, but we don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to upset him. It's his culture, leaving me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, oh, God, I can't comment. Why am I so racist if I mention the bandana? <laughs> Um, Nathan, thank you very much for for joining us. Um, like I said, it's just it's really nice to be able to to get different perspectives because you know I I love talking about stand up, but uh, it's really nice to be able to get people who have got different skills, different experiences, um, and it's going to be really it's going to be fun, right? Watching Ricky, mate, like in, enjoy it, man. This job is it's a lot of fun, man. It's a lot, and you know what. Been in lockdown, it's made me appreciate it even more. I mean, before lockdown, I loved it. But now in lockdown, I'm like, man, I miss just being in front of a live audience. Oh. So, yeah, it's a fun job. Enjoy the ride, man. I'm so excited to get back to it uh, after lockdown. Cannot wait. Uh, thank you very much, Nath. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll speak to you pleasure. soon. Thanks, son. Oh, thank Captain, you, my Captain. Take care, take care. Oh, Captain, my Captain.